Good morning, everybody. There's a few of you awake. That's all right. Good. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. Um, hey, before we jump into the message, I want to make sure and draw your attention uh, to something that's happening today that's not here at this church, but you had a role to play in what's happening. Uh, about seven years ago, um, our missions team decided to write a check for about $30,000 um, to give to a church planning network, which is basically just a whole bunch of different churches that bring whatever they can to the table to see a brand new church started. Um, and we were actually targeting Kansas City, Kansas at that point. Had no idea where, had no idea when, had no idea who. But about seven years ago, we started praying and planning for that to happen. And today, in Kansas City, Kansas, Hope United Church is meeting for the very first time as a local church, a local expression of Jesus's kingdom in Kansas City, Kansas. And I just want you to know right now, <laughs> there are individuals, there are families, there are kids gathering under the name of Jesus because of what you did seven years ago. Now, not just you, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It wasn't just you, but it was a, it was a group of churches that came together um, and, and decided to start a brand new church or decided to ask Jesus to start a brand new church and we brought our resources. And today they're, they're meeting for the very first time right now um, in Kansas City, Kansas. So I wanna say thank you. I wanna say way to go. And I wanna say, let's do it again. <laughs> let's continue to be the kind of church that doesn't just think of Jesus's church as what happens here in this building, or even here in this city. Let's continue to be the kind of people that view Jesus' church as something that multiplies and spreads like a virus. We have a little bit of an idea of what that looks like, right? Right? Let's be that kind of church. So I want to say way to go, but let's do it again, okay? And pray for Hope United Church. You can pray for me if you want to, but pray for York, because he's preaching his very first sermon like here in, I don't know, 20 minutes um, to his brand new congregation. Um, so, that's there. This is here. Okay, here we go. Last part of Moral Mayhem. I promised you last week that today would be all about Christmas. I was going to connect the book of Judges to Christmas, and some of you are like, how in the world is he going to do that? That's the only reason you showed up today to see me if I'm going to fall flat on my face. I get that. But it is amazing to me how in the middle of, if you've been here through this series, it's just chaos. It's moral mayhem. How in the midst of this chaos, when the nation of Israel is doing what they want, when they want, with whoever they want, and don't tell me how to live my life, and I'm going to do whatever I want, and you're not going to tell me what I'm doing is wrong, because what I think is right in my own eyes is what I'm going to do. In the middle of that, God was decorating for Christmas. And I just, I just want to show you that today. I want to show you how even in the midst of chaos, God is still at work. And he did that through two really unbelievable individuals. One of them was um, a woman who had decided that God had abandoned her. He, she, she decided that God was not active in her life. She actually decided that God is against me because I look at my circumstances, I look at what's happening in my life, I look at what's happening in, in my family, and there's no way that God is active at all. Maybe you showed up today thinking that. You might be able to identify 
with one of our characters. The other character, the man, he's just an extraordinary, extraordinary man. There was no real evidence of God's activity in his life either. But he decided to be countercultural. He decided to swim upstream. He decided to be different than all the people around him. He decided to believe that God was, in fact, active even when he couldn't see God's activity in his life. And, and God brings these two together in a very unusual way to save Christmas. Okay? So this story... It's actually found in the Old Testament book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible or a mobile device and you want to find that, we're going to be in Ruth here in a minute. You may have heard the story of Ruth. Maybe you've read it. Um, maybe it was read to you growing up in Sunday school or church or whatever. Uh, but what you might not know is that the, the, the story of the book of Ruth actually happens during the period of the Judges. Okay, You can't find the story in the book of Judges. It's a separate book. But this actually happens during that 300-year time frame that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. So it's, it's a bright spot. It's an exception. It's an aberration of everything else that was happening. And it was, just, it was God's way of preparing the world for Christmas. So we're going to read some of this. I'm going to tell you some of the story, and we'll wrap this up with a nice Christmas bow this morning, okay? So Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1, here's how the whole thing begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there it is. This is when this is happening. There was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judea, that's a pretty important city in Christmas story, right? Together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So picture the nation of Israel or turn to the maps in the back of your Bible and look at the picture of Israel. Bethlehem is in the lower left-hand corner if you're facing north, and just to your right is the Dead Sea. And if you were to, to swim across, well, not swim across, if you were to float across the Dead Sea, you could probably actually walk on the Dead Sea, but you go to the other side, to the right of the Dead Sea, is the, is the nation of Moab, Okay, so this couple and their two sons go around the Dead Sea to the country of Moab. And their names were Elimelech and Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi. When they get to Moab, they think to themselves, you know what, these two boys of ours need to get married. The problem is we're in Moab. And Moab is full of Moabites. And, and as, as we saw a couple weeks ago, when God formed the nation of Israel, he told them not to marry foreigners and not because God was against interracial marriage, but because at that point, when you married somebody from another race back then, you also married their gods. They brought their gods into the marriage and God was trying to keep the nation of Israel pure religiously, not racially. And it was a big deal back then, but when in Moab, right? Like when in Moab, do as the Moabites do. So they, they marry their sons off to, to Moabite women. Time goes by. Elimelech, the dad, he dies, making Naomi a widow. Then her oldest son dies. Then her youngest son dies, leaving her with the only family she has left are her, her two daughters-in-law who are Moabites, which is when Naomi decided, God has abandoned me. It's obvious. 
My, my husband's dead. My sons are dead. I'm in a foreign country. He's obviously cursed me. He's not with me, and he's certainly not for me. So she decides to leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem in Judea. She says to her daughters-in-law, look, I'm sorry your husbands are dead. I'm sorry I got you into this, but I'm going home. You should stay here with your people. You should get remarried, have a great life, but you really shouldn't be around me because God has obviously abandoned me. And one of her daughters-in-law takes her up on that offer. She stays in Moab. But the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides to stay with Naomi. Now, I tried to come up with a way to just kind of impress the weight of this decision on you, and there really is no modern way to explain this. But this is a huge deal. This is a dangerous decision. If you've been with us throughout this series, the ancient world, dangerous place for women. Dangerous place for women and, and for Ruth to basically leave the safety of her parents, to leave the safety of her tribe, to leave the safety of her extended family and stick by Naomi's side. This is a dangerous decision. And Ruth says to Naomi, I'm staying with you. Naomi says, no, it's too dangerous. She'll be in a foreign land. Those are my people, not your people. Eventually I'm gonna die and you're just gonna be a foreign Moabite woman in Israel. That's too dangerous. And then, in one, just one of the most beautiful passages in all of ancient literature, Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Listen to this. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. This is almost unheard of in ancient literature. It's almost unheard of in the ancient world. She's not just changing her address. She's changing her beliefs. She's changing her religion. She's changing who she worships because of her mother-in-law. Where, 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 where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That was a big deal too because she's not gonna be buried with her ancestors. She'll be buried as a foreigner, a Moabite widow goes with the older Israelite widow, making their way back to Bethlehem by themselves. They survive the journey, get to Bethlehem. It's not a huge city. It's a little village. And people see Naomi come and it's like, is that Naomi? I think that's Naomi, but who's the girl? Who's, who's the other one? And they approach her, Naomi, good to see you. Glad you're home. It's been forever since we've seen you. Look what Naomi says to them. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Why do you want us to call you that, Naomi? Because it means bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. Like we saw last week with Gideon, Naomi decided, God has abandoned me. He's abandoned us. He's not for us. He was for us, our ancestors. He was at work in the past, but he's obviously not at work today. He's made my life very bitter. <laughs> and here's something to think about that she couldn't have known at the, at the time. 3,500 years later, in Topeka, Kansas, what's a Topeka? 3,500 years later, halfway around the world, you know Naomi's story. You know, about, you know about Naomi. No, it's the, one of the only women that you know the name of from that period of history. You know Naomi's story because not only had God not abandoned her, 
she was actually in the very epicenter of the activity of God and didn't even know it. Just like you. Did you know you're at the very epicenter of God's activity right now in the world? Because you know where his activity is? In the church. Through the church. The people of Jesus. The kingdom of God on this earth is at work through Jesus' church. And it doesn't look like it all the time, does it? It, it seems like, well, God used to be active. It seems like he used to work. He used to speak. He used to, but... Actually, no, you're just not aware. It's not always as crystal clear as you think it should be. Just like Naomi. Story continues. Uh, Naomi and Ruth, they get to Bethlehem. It's harvest season. If you're a landowner with acreage in that day and age, you would send out your servants to to harvest the crop and bring it in. Um, The law of Moses said that you aren't to harvest every square foot of your fields. Leave the edges Leave the corners for widows, for orphans, for the poor, for those who can't provide for themselves. This is their way of taking care of people who couldn't provide for themselves. And that was a part of the Mosaic law. So Naomi says to Ruth, I'm too old to do this anymore. You need to go to the fields, gather what you can so we'll have food to either sell and make some, some money or to eat ourselves. Ruth goes out to some random field, which is a very dangerous thing as we find out later in the story because she's completely alone middle of a field, male-dominated society. If you were here for the first week, you remember what happened to a foreign woman, right? And she's a foreigner in this field. Well, it just so happens. She chooses the property of a man named Boaz. And we find out later in the story that Boaz is actually a distant relative of uh, Naomi's deceased husband. Boaz, he goes out to the fields to kind of see how his harvest is going, sees this foreign woman picking up the gleanings, of the, of the barley harvest and, and asks his, his workers, his servants, who's, who's the foreigner? And obviously he hadn't heard the story, so they tell him the story of Ruth. And after he hears the story, Boaz is so impressed. Look what he says to Ruth. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. Never been to this part of the world, didn't know anybody, but decided to do the honorable thing and stick by her mother-in-law. And that what he says next, again, I cannot impress upon you how countercultural this was at this point in time. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, Boaz still believed God was active. He still believed that God, the God of Israel, noticed people, individuals, who make the right choice who make the honorable choice. Boaz still believed that. So Boaz says to his servants, nobody lays a finger on Ruth. Don't bother her. Don't taunt her. Leave her alone. Let her take all she wants. She's an honorable woman who has done an honorable thing. Treat her with respect. And as a result, she's very successful in her gleanings. And her mother-in-law eventually says, where are you getting all this? Like, things are really good for you right now. And, and she says, well, 
I met a man in the city. His name is Boaz. And Naomi says, Boaz? That's actually a relative of my deceased husband. Time goes by. They're both getting older. One day, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, Ruth, you got to get married. I'm more than likely going to die. It's going to leave you all on your own. You need a covering. You need provision. You need to get married. And Naomi tells Ruth that they need to find what was called a kinsman redeemer. Now, explain this a little bit. The best way to think of a kinsman redeemer is to think of your rich uncle. Okay? Maybe you don't have a rich uncle, but you know somebody in your extended family and they've got like more money than God and everybody just thinks, well, we'll just call my wife's brother's cousin's sister's husband, Ralph, and he'll help us out. Not, we're not exactly related, but we're kind of related. The kinsman redeemer was the wealthy resource person that the extended family called when they ran into trouble. And in ancient Israel, the kinsman redeemer didn't have to help that family member, but if they had the ability to help, they could help. And there are a couple things that, that they would be asked to do from helping with money issues. Um, maybe there was a family member that got sold into slavery or a child that got sold into slavery that they would buy back. Uh, it could be a property thing where you know a piece of land got foreclosed on and they would come in and help with that. And in extreme circumstances, as we're getting ready to see, they could even be asked to provide an heir. If, if a male relative died with no heir, the kinsman redeemer could actually step in to help further somebody's family, to help further somebody's estate. And to the best of Ruth's understanding, this wasn't going to happen. She's not even Jewish. She's, she's not from Bethlehem. She's a Moabite. But Naomi says to Ruth, you need to ask Boaz to be our kinsman redeemer, which is a request equal to a marriage proposal. The only way he becomes their kinsman redeemer is if he marries Ruth. Okay, now I'm gonna say this. In our overly sexualized culture, when people read this story, they read things into it that aren't there. It's like the, the young, attractive Moabite foreigner seduces the older Israelite man, you know? That's not in the story. It's not even insinuated in the story. In fact, the opposite is actually true. This is very risky for Ruth to ask. This is very risky for Boaz to accept, and here's why. Because once a, 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 a woman became a part of a man's estate, and it, it's, it's beyond us to even think about this, but back then women were property. So when, he, when she became a part of his estate, he was responsible for her, for any children she had, and for the behavior of those children. So if something happened to him, a large portion or all of his estate could go to the children of the woman he chose to be the kinsman redeemer of. He had no idea what her family situation was back in Moab. He has no idea there's little Ruth's, you know, baby Ruth's running around. You know, he had no idea, right? So, so this was risky. This is a very sacrificial decision for Boaz to make. And I'm gonna let you read it for yourself. But in the most appropriate way to fit that culture, Ruth goes to Boaz and humbly asks, knowing he could say no, thinking he probably would say no, 
and asks him to be her kinsman redeemer, to be Naomi and Ruth's kinsman redeemer. It's one thing to let me glean in your field and protect me, but to marry me, to, to bring all of my liabilities onto your balance sheet. Wow. And Boaz, an honorable man who recognized the honor in Ruth, who honored her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law that decided God has abandoned me, I'm bitter, the Almighty has forgotten me. Boaz says, yes, I'll marry you, Ruth. And he marries Ruth. And, and that could be the end of the story. Like an honorable man in Israel does the honorable thing, takes a risk in order to, you know, honor a distant relative of Naomi's husband, makes sure that Ruth and Naomi have a covering and a protection, you know, end of story, and they live happily ever after. That could be the end of the story right there. Except God didn't make a promise to Ruth and Boaz. God made a promise to Israel. God made a promise to Israel, and God keeps his promises. Even when they were not cooperating with him at this point in history, God refused to back down from his promise. Even when they were unfaithful, God would remain faithful. So Ruth and Boaz eventually have a son. His name was Obed. And if you read the end of Ruth, there's this really tender moment where Naomi is holding baby Obed and the people around her remind her, look, Naomi, God was faithful to you after all. You had abandoned God, but God did not abandon you. And in fact, he's allowed you to live long enough to hold proof of his goodness. And then she dies. And then eventually Boaz dies. And then eventually Ruth dies. But Obed grows up. And Obed gets married, and he has a son as well. And Obed's son is Jesse, who had a whole bunch of sons. And years go by until one day God speaks to the prophet Samuel. And Samuel, he says, I'm about to do something new. This, this new thing will echo for thousands of years throughout Israel and throughout the world. And here's what it says. 1 Samuel 16. This is God speaking to the prophet Samuel. He said, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of where? Hmm. I have chosen one of his sons to be king, Jesse, the son of Bo Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite woman in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned Israel. Samuel shows up, Jesse, I need you to call all your sons in because God has chosen one of them to be king. That's a good parenting day right there, right? Like if somebody shows up and says, one of your kids is going to be king, just pick one. I don't care. Take one. Because now I'm the father of the king, right? So Jesse lines up his sons. And Samuel looks at the first one and says, That's, he looks like a king. He carries himself. He stands like a king. And God says, nope. He goes to the second one. Okay. Second place is the first loser, but I guess we'll take it. And God's like, nope. And then the third one. And then the fourth one. And all down the line. And God says, nope, 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 nope. And then Samuel says, Jesse, I think I got the right address. Do you have any more sons? And Jesse's like, 
yeah, but he's not really like king material. So we didn't really invite him to the ceremony. And Samuel says, I will not sit down until you bring him in. And on to the pages of history walks who? David. David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite who was faithful to her mother-in-law. And years go by. Another prophet, Nathaniel, appears to David to speak on behalf of God. Here's what he says to King David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established, what? Forever. Forever. Do you know what the word forever in Hebrew means? Forever. (laughs) And from this prophecy... From that day forward, the Jews recognized if there was going to be a Messiah, if there was going to be a Savior, if there was going to be a king that reigned forever, it would come from the line of David, from the house of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the husband of Ruth, the Moabite. And David had a son who had a son who had a son, and 25 pregnancies later, to use the biblical language, 25 begats later. The prophet or the the gospel writer Matthew tells us this, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. I know you want to gloss over the genealogies, but genealogies are important. Because 25 pregnancies after David, Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. And throughout his life, Jesus would not just be known as the son of God, the Messiah. Jesus would also be known as the son of David because he came from the line of David, born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the hometown of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman who would marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son, who had sons. And many, many years later, Jesus is born. And that's how Ruthie and Bo saved Christmas. (laughs) Now, if that's not amazing enough, and I know I nerd out on things that you guys don't nerd out on. Okay, I get that. But this is really important. So if you dozed off, come back to me for just a couple more minutes. All right? When Jesus was born, you know the story. When Jesus is born, this group of wise men show up to his family and announce to his family and to anyone that would listen that this isn't simply just a baby. This is the birth of a king. And it wasn't just those wise men who believed that. It was actually the actual king, King Herod, who believed it. And we know King Herod believed it because he was so threatened by his birth that he tried to stamp his life out. So even King Herod believed this was, in fact, a king. Many, many years later, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, appointed by Tiberius, the emperor of Rome. That's history. And Pilate would ask Jesus, just moments away from sending him to his execution, he looked to Jesus and said, are you a king? And Jesus looked him right in the eye, 
staring down the power of Rome and says, it is as you say, I am a king. But don't, don't be fooled. I am not like every other king. I've come to rule and reign in the hearts of men. My kingdom is a kingdom of conscience. So yes, Pilate, I am a king. But I'm unlike every other king that you would think of. And Pilate, who everybody knew at that time in history, Pilate, who everybody feared at that point in history, Pilate became a footnote in the story of King Jesus. The king who leveraged his power for the powerless. The king who, that did not do what any other king imagined or ever thought of doing. Instead of requiring his subjects to die for him, he would actually die for his subjects. <laughs> A king who never forces anyone to bow the knee, but instead invites every single one of us to bow our hearts to his rule and to his reign. It took God thousands of years, thousands of years to prepare for Christmas. But you and me, us, in a single moment in time, a single decision can take this entire story made up of thousands of years and millions of people with a single decision, start down a path that impacts you for billions of years. And so as we just wrap this up, we conclude this series, I, I want to invite you to consider doing something that perhaps you've never done before. To consider doing something that maybe you haven't done for a really, really long time. And that's simply to decide, God, instead of doing what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, believing whatever I want, spending however I want, dating however I want, living however I want, right now, like right here in this moment in time, I want to yield the throne of my heart to King Jesus. I want to get off the throne of my heart. I want to vacate it. And I want to invite you to sit on it, to rule and to reign. And again, unlike every other king, he will not force you. He doesn't force us. One writer in the New Testament gives us a picture of Jesus standing outside the door knocking, waiting for us to open, waiting for us to invite him in, to sit down at the table, to have communion with, to, to have food with, to have relationship with. And if you've never done that, why not today? Why not now? Or maybe you say, Tim, I grew up in church. I've heard this before. Not exactly like that, but I've heard these stories before. And if I'm honest with myself, I've been doing what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and it's not working out real well. But I, I honestly, I question whether or not God's going to take me back. And if that's you, I just, I just invite you to read the book of Judges. <laughs> read the book of Judges, because time after time after time, the nation of Israel rebelled. And yes, because God is a God of mercy, he allowed them to face the consequences of their rebellion. But time after time after time, he accepted them back. He took them back. So whether it's your first time or your 20th time, I want to lead you in a prayer. And the words, they're, 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 like, they're not magic words. It's not even really the words that matter. 
Prayer is just an opportunity for you to express to your heavenly father that you're going to yield. You're going to surrender the throne of your heart to Jesus. You're getting off the throne and you're asking Jesus to sit on it. And and you can pray this in your heart. You can pray it under your breath. But in a posture of reverence, I just want to invite us to bow our heads, to close our eyes. If you're ready to pray this, you can simply tell him something like this. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he's the King of Kings. And I want him to be my king. Father, I surrender the throne of my heart to him. I believe that when he died, he died for me. He became my kinsman redeemer, my provider, my protector. God, would you please forgive my rebellion? arrogance, my sin. Would you open my eyes to see the world the way you see it? Would you open my eyes so I might even see myself the way you see me? God, give me the grace I need each and every day to follow Jesus wherever he leads. I yield my life to you. Father, for every man, for every woman, for every teenager that prayed that prayer, I, my, my, my hope, my desire, my prayer is that you would seal it through your spirit, that they would know that they know that they know that they know that you're with them, you're for them, and you're in them through your spirit that they would know that even when circumstances look the exact opposite, even when things don't seem to be working out, even when things don't work out at all and they're going the exact opposite direction of what we want them to go, that you're still alive, you're still active, you're still working for your glory, for our good. And God, just as you sent Jesus the first time as a baby, as a helpless baby. God, you're you're going to send him again. And this time, he's going to come as a victorious king to establish his kingdom. And in that moment, at that time, we we read in your word, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess (laughs) because we won't have any other choice. It'll be so obvious. So God, in this moment, in this time that we have in between now and then, would you show us what it looks like each and every day not to do what we want, when we want, whenever we want, but to bend our knee, to surrender, to yield to you, to follow you in relationship. And then watch as you work, watch as you move, watch as you send us out to be your hands and feet. God, help us to be the kind of church that lives like this, that lives in the spirit of Boaz, that lives in the spirit of of seeing how you're at work, even when we can't see it, of being honorable, of being righteous, of making the next right decision. And then in the end, watch as you work to be able to get to 
to the other side of this life and look back and see how you were at work in everything, the good, the bad, and everything in between. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it continues to be at work in us and through us. And God, I pray this, I ask this in the name of King Jesus. I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today for the rest of this series. Hey, if you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to let somebody know. You can use the connection card if you want to let us know. You can reach out to one of the pastors. Talk to the individual who, who, who um, brought you or you know you're connected to. Some resources we'd love to get in your hands to help you grow in that relationship that you started today. All right? Hey, you're dismissed.